There are a lot of songs out there that move you, that make you want to stand up and just raise your fist in the air and pump your fist in the air and cheer and say, go, fight, fight, fight. And this is absolutely one of the coolest. I just, this, this song just makes me so proud and so wanting to stand up and battle and fight for everyone. So this is just an awesome song. So and all those things I didn't say were wrecking balls inside my brain. I was screaming loud today. Can you hear my voice this time? This is my fight song. Take back my life song. Prove I'm alright song. My power's turned on. Right I'll be strong. I'll play my fight. And if you've ever wanted to get someone to do something, but they were just kind of slow and unwilling, you just you just look at them straight in the face and say, "Come on, Eileen." So begins another generation. I know we just ended one with 200, but I wanted to get this one underway, get it started, get season three going before my great trip, before my great vacation. And that great vacation, that great trip is a cruise. I'm going on a cruise and you'll get a trip report by at the end of the cruise or somewhere in the middle, hopefully. And yes, I'm recording this outside again. So if you hear kids screaming and yelling in the background, I am outside at my folks' house. And there is a party for the neighbors. The neighbor is her, it's her birthday today. And her family is over and there's an awesome party for her. So that's what you may hear in the background. But I, I, will, I wanted to get season three underway. Get it started. Yeah, I know. 200 episodes in. This is 201. 200 episodes in, 200 episodes and three seasons. Well, if you can call a podcast three seasons. Who would have thought that I could talk that much? And I know people tell me, you never shut up. <laughs> but I, ne- I never imagined that I could get going or that I could talk that much. So it's, it's, it's stunning to me that anything that that I've done is this interesting to people not only just in the Seattle and the U.S. area but all over the world this is just so beyond awesome and it's actually you've actually had people write into the podcast 
uh, unctifiasco at gmail.com and then go on to the podcast Facebook community, unctifiasco, and send us emails and send us comments about how much they like the podcast and how cool it is and how awesome it is. And first of all, thank you all so much for listening. I can't tell you how how much it means to me to have so many listeners and so many people just willing to let me entertain a portion of their lives. Even if it's just for 30 minutes, let me entertain a portion of their lives. And there are there before I get into what I wanted to get into today, there is a few objectives that I want to go through for the podcast. Um, I've always wanted to do something so that it didn't sound produced. It didn't sound, you know, overly worked. And I hate editing. As everyone knows, I despise editing. Hate it so much. Because I've edited things in the past, and when I do that, I can be kind of a perfectionist when it comes to that. And things are never perfect. Things are never right, no matter how perfect they seem. So... That is just extremely irritating to me. So my objective is not to edit things. To make sure that the way things are recorded are the way life occurred at the time of the recording. So when you listen to things, you listen, you hear it live. So I always, and I want people, I want everyone to be able to listen to it. I want families, I want friends, everyone to be able to listen to it. So there's things that that I don't talk about or that I prefer not to be talked about so that everyone can enjoy it, so they can be universal. And being a podcast, doing this is so awesome. It's so much fun, and I really love it. And the one thing, and I know you're rolling your eyes, the one thing that is just beyond awesome is that the inspiration I have had, I have a background in radio and television and film. So I know a lot about this, and I study this, and I've gotten into it, and I focused on this as as I've gone through life, and so I know a thing or two about broadcasting, and about trying to get into this as deeply as I have, and I I and I try to, and I I've, I've listened, I've got several inspirations that that you hear at the end of the show, they're. Um, I th- people who have inspired me to do podcasting, not just through my education, but I'm going to give a shout out to Matt and Kimbra of Fantastic Cruising. They're one of my biggest inspirations for doing this. And to my good friend Tony Dials and to Jeff from New York, and sorry, New York, sorry, and all the great things that have inspired me and just to keep going and I'm not, I, this will not stop. I have no plans to stop it. And this is so cool. I just find it so cool that now 201, 201, 201 episodes in, and this, we're still trucking along. We're still plugging along as hard as we can. It's just beyond awesome, and I really, really like it. But I also want to get into, I know I've talked a lot to two or three episodes. I've talked a lot on Bugsy, talked about Bugsy Siegel. Well, there's a lot of, and I've mentioned, I know I've mentioned, um, Tony Spilatro, who, um, they, well, he was called the Ant, because that's the first three letters of Anthony. So they called him Tony the Ant Spilatro. So the episode was called Ant-Man. And that mentioned a lot of, um, also a rip on the Marvel superhero character. There is also, so that was the episode on Tony Spilatro. But I, I've done quite, and I want to do one 
on Arthur Simon Flegenheimer, who I know you're going, huh? Who? I know if I heard that name, I'd be doing that too. He's known as Dutch Schultz, one of the most famous mob people in, in world history. And a lot of this is from my notes from Wikipedia and other sources that I've gone to. Arthur Simon Flegenheimer was born on August 6, 1901 to German-Jewish immigrants Hermann and Emma Flegenheimer, who had married in Manhattan on November 10, 1900. He had a younger sister, Helen, born in 1904. Hermann Flegenheimer apparently abandoned his family, and Emma is listed as divorced in the 1910 U.S. Census. In her 1932 petition for U.S. citizenship, however, she wrote that her husband had died in 1910, though it is unclear whether he died before or after the U.S. 1910 census. The event traumatized the young Dutch, who he, whose name obviously he adopted later. He dropped out of school in the 8th grade to help support himself and his mother. He worked as a feeder and a pressman for the Clark Loose Leaf Company and Caxton Press, the American Press, and Schultz Trucking in the Bronx between 1916 and 1919. When Flegenheimer began working at a neighborhood nightclub owned by small by small-time mobster, he started robbing craps games before turning to burglary. Eventually, he was caught breaking into an apartment and sent to the prison on Blackwell's Island, now called Roosevelt Island. Flegenheimer slash Schultz's mugshot at 18 was published in a 2010 book, New York City Gangland. And what you're hearing in the background right now is on the other side of the fence, that's, sorry to interrupt here, on the other side of the fence right here, it's just a lot of noisy cars going by, so you're hearing a lot of loud noises, to which I apologize emphatically for. He proved, Dutch proved to be such an unmanageable prisoner that he was transferred to a work farm in West Hampton, Long Island. After he was recaptured following an escape, he had an extra two months added to his sentence. Flegenheimer was released on parole on December 8, 1920, and went back to work at Schultz Trucking. Dang allergy coughs, even occur outside. With the enactment of the Volstead Act and the start of Prohibition, the shipping company became, became, began smuggling liquor and beer into New York City from Canada. This led Flegenheimer to start associating with known criminals. It was, it was also during this time that Flegenheimer became better known as Dutch Schultz. Following in a disagreement, he left the Schultz trucking and went to work for their Italian competitors. In the mid-1920s, Schultz had begun work as a bouncer at the, at the Hub Social Club, a small speakeasy in the Bronx owned by a gangster named Joey No. No was, was impressed with Schultz's ruthlessness and his reputation for brutality when he lost his temper, and he made and made him a partner. Together, they soon opened more illegal drinking joints around the Bronx. 
Using their own trucks to reduce high delivery costs, they brought in beer made by Frankie Dunn, a brewer in Union City, New York. Union, sorry, New York, Union City, New Jersey. Anyone who's been to you, any, anyone who's been to the parks out there or been to New Jersey, knows that was completely false when I said Union City, New York, <laughs> Union City, New Jersey. Schultz often rode shotgun to guard the trucks from hijackers. Schultz and No soon had to deal with the brothers John and Joe Rock, who were already running a bootlegging operation in the Bronx. Initially, the brothers refused to buy beer from No and Schultz. But eventually, John, the elder brother, agreed to cooperate. However, his younger brother Joe refused. One night, No, the No Schultz gang kidnapped Joe. They lost my place. They beat him and hung him by his thumbs from a meat hook. Then they allegedly wrapped a gauze bandage smeared with discharge from a gonorrhea infection over his eyes. Yeah, you're doing the same thing I am. His family reportedly paid $35,000 for his release. Shortly after his return, he went blind. Well, yeah. From then on, the No Schultz gang made, made, met little opposition as they expanded across the entire Bronx. Bootlegging during Prohibition made Schultz very wealthy. The No Schultz operation, which began to flourish in the Bronx, soon became the only gang able to rival the network of Italian crime syndicates that became the Mafia's five families. When the gang expanded from the Bronx over to Manhattan's Upper West Side and neighborhoods of Washington Heights, Yorkville, and Harlem, they moved their headquarters to East 149th Street in the Bronx. However, this brazen move led to a bootleg war with New York's Irish mob, led by Jack by Jack Legs Diamond. In the early hours of October 16, 1928, No was shot several times outside the Chateau Madrid, a speakeasy on two, uh, at 231 West 54th. Although seriously wounded, he managed to return fire. A blue Cadillac was seen hitting some parked cars and losing one of its doors before speeding away. When police found the car an hour later, they discovered the body of Louis Weinberg. No relation to the Schultz gang members Abraham Bo Weinberg and George Weinberg they found him in the back seat. No's wounds became infected, and he died on November 21st. Schultz was left angry and distraught by the loss of his friend and his mentor. Retaliation started a few weeks later, when Arnold Rothstein, a kingpin in the Jewish mob, was found fatally shot near the service entrance to the Park Central Hotel on November 6, 1928. Although George Hump McManus supposedly killed Rothstein over a bad gambling debt, 
Schultz is believed to have ordered the killing in retribution for Noah's death. This theory is supported by the fact that the first person McManus rang after the killing was Schultz's attorney, Dixie Davis. Schultz's trusted lieutenant, Bo Weinberg, then picked up McManus and drove him away from the murder scene. McManus was later cleared of the killing. On October 12, 1930, Legs Diamond was shot and wounded at the Hotel Monticello on Manhattan's west side. Two gunmen forced their way into Diamond's room and shot him five times before fleeing. Still in his pajamas, Diamond staggered into the hallway and collapsed. When asked later by the New York Police Commissioner how he managed to walk out of the room, Diamond said he drank two shots of whiskey first. Diamond was rushed to the, poly to the polyclinic hospital in Manhattan, where he eventually recovered. On December 30, 1930, Diamond was discharged from polyclinic. After recovering from his wounds, he left New York for a lengthy stay in Europe. During his absence, the gang was forced to leave the city. His, ga his gang was forced to leave the city. When he returned home, Diamond began carving out a new territory for himself in Albany. He was killed in a cheap Albany rooming house at 67 Dove Street by two gunmen in December of 1931. Schultz also had to deal with inter with internecine conflicts within his own gang. In 1930, one of Schultz's enforcers, Vincent Call, demanded to be made an equal partner. This was because the Schultz gang members received a flat salary instead of the customary percentage from the take, a unique arrangement compared to other major gangs in organized crime. When Schultz refused, Call formed his own crew with the ultimate goal of murdering Schultz and taking over his territory. <coughs> In the bloody gang, gang war that followed, Call lost his older brother Pete and earned the nickname Mad Dog. From the press, after a child was killed during a botched assassination attempt committed by his gang. In February of 1932, Cull was lured into a trap. While he was taking a, a call in a drugstore phone booth, gunmen entered the store and machine gunned him. The killers may have included Edward Fats McCarthy and the brothers Bo and George Weinberg. May. May have. But since it was the mob, no one can get close enough in any situation involving the mob. No one can get close enough to truly identify who did what. Kind of like with who killed Bugsy Siegel. No one really knows that. A lot of people have claimed it. People in connection to to Mo and B. Sedway. A lot of a lot of people have claimed that. And no one can no one really knows. No one can really tell. But with the end of prohibition, Dutch Schultz needed to find new sources of income. His answer came with, Ab with Otto Abracadabra Berman and the Harlem numbers, Harlem numbers Racket. The numbers racket 
the forerunner of pick of pick three lotteries, required players to choose three numbers, which were then derived from the last number before the decimal, and the last number before the decimal in the handle, the total amount bet, taken daily at Belmont Belmont Park. Berman was a middle-aged accountant and a math whiz who helped Schultz fix fix this racket. In a matter of seconds, Berman could mentally calculate the minimum amount of money Schultz needed to bet at the track to alter the odds at the last minute. This strategy ensured Schultz was always controlled which, which numbers won. Schultz always controlled which numbers won. Guaranteeing a large number of losers in Harlem and a multi-million dollar a month tax-free income for Schultz. Berman was reportedly paid $10,000 a week, equivalent to $162,000 last year in 2021. Along with the policy rackets, Schultz began extorting New York restaurant owners and their workers. Schultz, working through a hulking gangster named Jules Jules Mog M-O-D-G-I-L-E-W-S-K-Y, also known as Julie Martin, made deals with the leaders of waiters of the waiters local 16 and cafeteria workers local 302 to extort money by forcing restaurant owners to join the Metropolitan Restaurant and Cafeteria Owners Association. an employer association with Schultz and the one that Schultz had founded. Those who refused to join the association were faced with exorbitant wage demands from the unions, followed by strikes and stink bomb attacks. The Metropolitan Association then stepped in to arrange a settlement of the strike with a sweetheart contract for low wages contingent on the employer joining the association. Martin and the name I couldn't spell, M-O-D-G-I-L-E-W-S-K-Y, successfully extracted the thousands of dollars of tributes and dues from the, from the terrorized restaurant owners for Schultz. During Schultz's tax trial, he began to suspect that Martin was skimming from the shakedown operation. Schultz had recently discovered a $70,000 disparity on the books. On the evening of March 2, 1935, Schultz invited Martin to a meeting at the Harmony Hotel in Cohoes, New York. At the meeting, at which Chief Enforcer Bo Weinberg and mob lawyer Dixie Davis were also present, Martin deliberately or Martin belligerently denied Schultz's charges and began arguing with him. Both men were drinking heavily as the arguments continued, and Schultz sucker punched Martin. Finally, Martin admitted that he had taken $20,000, which he believed he was entitled to. Dixie Davis related what happened next. But Schultz was ugly. He had been drinking, and suddenly he had his gun out. Schultz wore his pistol under his vest, tucked inside his pants, right against his belly. One jerk at his vest, and he had it in his hand. All in the same quick motion, he swung it up, sticking it in Jules Martin's mouth, 
and pulled the trigger. It was as simple and under it was as simple and undramatic as that. Just one quick motion of the hand. Dutch Schultz did that murder just as casually as if he were picking his teeth. As Martin contorted on the floor, Schultz apologized to Davis for killing someone in front of him. When Davis later read the newspaper story about Martin's murder, he was shocked to find out that the body was found on a snowbank with a dozen stab wounds to the chest. When Davis asked about this, Schultz replied, deadpan. I cut his heart out. In the early 1930s, U.S. Attorney Tommy Dewey, Tommy Dewey had set his sights on convicting Schultz for non-payment of federal taxes. Schultz was indicted in New York on January in January 1933 and became a fugitive. Tommy Dewey subsequently left the Justice Department first for a private practice, then as a state-appointed special prosecutor and DA. Schultz surrendered in New York, in Albany, New York, in November of 1934. This was part of his plan to have his trials moved from New York City to upstate. His first tax evasion trial in Syracuse Oh, in Syracuse, my home city. That's the city where I grew up. Syracuse, city where I was raised. His first tax evasion trial in Syracuse ended in a hung jury, with many speculating he'd bribed the jurors. He would face retrial in Malone, New York. With the case going to a second trial... Schultz quickly set about presenting himself to the townspeople of Malone as a country squire and a good citizen. He donated cash to local businesses, gave toys to sick children, and performed other charitable deeds, or deeds that he hoped seemed charitable. The strategy worked, as he was acquitted of tax evasion in late summer 1935. The mayor of New York, Fiorello LaGuardia, was so outraged at the verdict that he issued an order that Schultz should be arrested on site should he return to the city. As a result, Schultz was forced to relocate his base of operations across the Hudson to New York. As the defense cost to fight his tax case mounted, Schultz had found it necessary to reduce the commission he paid to those running his policy rackets and to bolster what he called the Arthur Flegenheimer Defense Fund. This tactic angered the runners and the games controllers, who, despite being threatened with violence for showing any, any dissent, hired a hall, hired a hall, held a mass protest meeting, and declared a strike of sorts. Very quickly, the cash flow dried up, and Schultz was forced to back down, which permanently damaged the relationship between his gang and their associates. <coughs> Bo Weinberg, Schultz's chief lieutenant, was so concerned about the amount of money that Schultz was taking from the rackets 
to fund his legal defense that he sought advice from New Jersey mob boss Longies Willman, who put him in touch with a Sicilian-born gangster, here's a name everyone knows of, Lucky, Lucky Luciano. The deal that Weinberg wanted was, was to retain, retain a percentage and keep overall control of the Schultz gang. However, Lucky planned to break up the gang's rackets and territory among his own associates once Schultz was convict, convicted of tax evasion. Believing that a guilty verdict was a foregone conclusion at the second trial, Lucky and his allies implemented their plan to take control. Their plan met little resistance because of the ongoing bad feelings over the attempted pay cuts and the support of Weinberg. However, after Schultz was acquitted, he quickly arranged a meeting with Lucky through the commission to clarify the situation. Schultz even converted to Roman Catholicism to cozy up to Lucky. Lucky pl placated Schultz with the explanation that they were just looking after the shop while he was away to ensure that everything ran smoothly and that full control of his rackets would be returned to Schultz once the heat died down. Publicly, Schultz was forced to accept that version because of the ongoing attention from law enforcement and Tommy Dewey, now a specialty prosecutor appointed by Fiorello, de La Fiorello LaGuardia. A month after his acquittal, his own chief lieutenant, Bo Weinberg, was never seen again. After he had walked out of a midtown Manhattan nightclub. I betcha I can tell you why he was never seen again. There's a lot about Dutch and about Flegenheimer, well, his real name. There's a lot about Dutch and a lot of Dutch. A lot, of, a lot about Dutch. I just love accidental slips of the tongue. A lot about Dutch. This is all really cool. A lot of... I don't know why it is, because maybe because I'm so... I'm such... I can't fathom someone being this bad that the fact that people actually are or actually were is just really, really interesting to me. And I've been asked, a lot of people have emailed, and a lot of people have asked, what is the situation, or what would you think? Like, if you grew up in certain times, where does it seem like the mob is more dangerous? It seems like, I don't know that I could say that there was an era throughout mob history, at least in the stories and the research that I've done, that I could say the mob was more dangerous back in Bugsy's and Dutch's times versus the times where you get John Gotti and the times of the newer generation. I can't really say which one, which area is more generation because they're more, more dangerous because they're all violently violent and dangerous and just evil, bad, bad people. So I can never say which one was worse over the other. It's just impossible. But their stories and their legends are just wildly interesting and wildly entertaining. And what I find have found very, very interesting why I've done so many episodes on him, what I find very, very interesting about Bugsy was that he could have such a hair trigger. He could be so violent and so twisted and so nuts and so evil. And 
he was a playboy, like you've heard him laugh like two episodes ago and several episodes in the past. And with Dutch, how Dutch dared to go against Lucky and how bad Lucky was and how just the kind of reputation that Dutch had. It was just this the stories of it's just interesting to learn about. It's just wildly, wildly interesting. And the fact that another thing that's wildly, wildly interesting is this is, like I said at the beginning, this is 201 episodes. And this is the beginning of season three. That is just so cool. Just so, 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 so cool. And I wanted to get season three started, like I said, to get it out there before we went on the cruise. Just just for the heck of it. Just because I thought it was just, I just wanted to. And it's just wildly, wildly interesting. So thank you all so much for listening. Stick around for a little bit more in the end here. Want to check out the best podcast and best YouTube channel out there? True, true friends of this podcast? Check out Fantastic Cruising over on Apple Podcasts and all your favorite podcasting devices and services. Give them a five-star review. Head on over to YouTube. Look up Fantastic Studios. Give them a five-star review and give them comments. They'll love that to death. They are the greatest podcast out there. Give them a shout-out. Want to check out the best travel vlogger and videos anywhere? Go to Atlantic City, Disney, Six Flags, all along the Atlantic City boardwalk, and go to Vegas. Check out the New York channel, N-U-Y-A-W-K, on YouTube. You will be thoroughly impressed and thoroughly entertained. You will love every second of what you're seeing. Go to YouTube and check out N-U-Y-A-W-K. You'll love what you're seeing. You'll enjoy every second of it. Want to check out the environment, the climate, the planet, and everything we can do to have an impact on it? Check out City Climate Corner on all the podcasting platforms, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, on everything. You won't be disappointed. You'll enjoy and love what you're listening to.